0: following content is derived from the preaching ministry of Ashland Avenue Baptist Church in Oldham County, Kentucky, and is reproduced here for the benefit of its members. We exist to treasure and spread a passion for the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples, and we pray that God's grace among us would spread beyond us to the benefit of anyone who happens to listen. For more information about our church, go to ashlandoc.org. Thanks for listening. Open up your Bibles this morning to the book of Acts chapter 11, Acts chapter 11. We're going to be uh, looking at the whole entire chapter, Acts 11, uh, but I'm going to only read verses 19 through 30. So find Acts chapter 11, beginning in verse 19, uh, and when you have found that, I want to invite you uh, to stand in reverence for the reading of God's perfect and holy word, Acts 11 And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Let's pray. Father, we look to your word for many things. Um, We look, first and foremost, every time to see Jesus, Lord, to see our Savior. And Lord, to, to know him and to know you, the triune God. And Lord, today we also look to your word and we see the pattern for the mission that you've given your church. We see how the apostles... Began to take that mission and, and take it to the world in obedience to the call that you placed upon your church. And Lord, we desire to be a church that follows your pattern. Lord, we desire Lord to bring everything we do into conformity to your word and to what you have revealed to us. And so, Lord, we ask for your grace to help us to determine that so that we would be faithful um, so that the body of Christ here that meets here, Ashland, Oldham County, Lord, so that we would reflect you in, in front of this world, so that many others would come and be drawn to you through our ministry for your glory. Lord, we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, before coming here, uh, as many of you know, I did student ministry uh, for nearly a decade, college ministry. Uh, as well as uh, youth ministry uh, from middle school through high school. And, and one of the big problems a decade ago, and I, I assume it's still a problem today, I'm not as well read in it today as I was back then, uh, but one of the things that people uh, who did student ministry talked about a lot was this, this statistical problem that when, when these researchers would go into cities and interview students, Uh, they found that 70 to 80 percent of youth who grew up in the church four years after graduating high school were no longer in the church. And so take a youth group of 100. Only 20 to 30 of them, four years later, would still be faithfully serving as part of local churches. And so obviously this is a huge problem. And so many people would put together theories of why you have to explain it because that's just data. So you have to figure out why. What's the cause? What's the reason why our students are leaving the church within four years of graduating? And, And most of the theories that people came up with, to be completely honest with you, I just don't buy. One of them was that Christians are just too judgmental and you know, they would always interview the ones who weren't going to church to determine these answers. You know, church just doesn't seem relevant to my problems. And here's the conclusion that we reached. And honestly, this is how we, we shaped Ashland's entire student ministry to this day. is shaped around this belief. We, we looked at that same data and we said, listen, the problem is not the churches that are failing to attract these students. The problem are the churches that have reached these students because they have clearly failed to disciple these students. You see, that's the problem. The problem, and and the problem for many of us in American evangelicalism, is that we have often put all of the emphasis on reaching people, We have often put all of the emphasis on getting as many people inside of a room as we possibly can so that we can count the thousands, and we've put no emphasis on discipling those people, on what Jesus told us in the Great Commission, to teach them everything that I have commanded you. I mean, just think with me for a minute about a successful youth ministry. How do you measure a successful youth ministry? You would think a youth ministry is successful if it had a lot of students coming to it, wouldn't you? That's clearly a successful youth ministry. Look at all of the students coming. It's amazing. Well, you know how you get a lot of teenagers to come to something? (laughs) Food, for sure. But, But one thing you do is you isolate them. You get all the people who are older than them out of the way. Because what teenager wants to hang out with adults, right? So you isolate them away from the rest of the church. And you put them over here in their own little dimension. And, and then you entertain them a lot. And you do a lot of exciting things with them. And after about seven years of doing that, about seven years of them being around only people their, a- their age, you know what you've trained them to do? You've trained them to leave the church when they graduate. That's what you've trained them to do. And so our whole approach to student ministry was, hey, let's start treating them like adults now. You heard Joe a couple weeks ago get up here and talk about how once a student begins the sixth grade, we stop ta- calling them children. We start calling them young adults. And some of you parents are like, that's a little weird. My sixth grader's not a young adult yet. But we're doing that with a discipleship purpose. Because we want them to start thinking of themselves as young adults. And so we don't isolate them and segment them all the time away from other adults. We put them around older people and we begin expecting things from them. And that's probably not going to attract multitudes. I don't think Oldham County High School is just in mass going to walk over here one Wednesday night. But you know what I do think is going to happen? I think in ten years a lot of them are going to still be following Jesus. Because we've discipled them within the context of the church. Now I mention all this because I need you to understand something. It's really good to reach people. But for the longest time, we've put so much emphasis on reaching people that we've not put enough emphasis on keeping people, on training people, on teaching people to follow Jesus through the various stages of life. And that's really important. Because what we see in Acts 11 is that by the design of God, that was never His intention. The pattern of the early church, what we read about in Acts 11 is we begin to see what it looks like for a church to begin reaching people, people, by the way, for the first time, who had no biblical background. They're reaching Gentiles now. They're reaching former pagans. They're reaching secular people. They're reaching people who didn't grow up with the Old Testament Scriptures. And when they begin reaching them, we we see what they begin doing. It's not just get them in the door and leave it. But there's a whole methodology. There's, There's a whole way of thinking about what it means to follow Jesus. And so I want us to look at Acts 11 this morning. As a as a about to be new church, okay. Think about this with me. This is so practical for us, because we have to begin shaping. What does it look like for Ashland Community Church? What we're about to be on January 1st. What does it look like for Ashland, Oldham County now? What does it look like for us to obey the mission that Jesus has given us? And Acts is a great book to be studying together at this time, isn't it? In the providence of God, this is where He has us. And so there's so much here that we could learn. And the first thing that I want us to see this morning is that missions starts with conviction in verses 1 through 18. Missions starts with conviction. Look with me in verse 1. We didn't read this, so we're going to go through it together. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea, heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. All right, so this is just bringing us up today. Remember what we talked about last week where Peter goes to Cornelius, right? God leads him there, and Peter preaches the gospel amongst these Gentiles. These are non-Jewish people, and they begin to respond to the gospel they actually receive the holy spirit and then they are baptized and added to the church so news of this begins to travel the apostles and the brothers who were throughout judea begin hearing about it and some people don't like it look at verse two so when peter went up to jerusalem now this is peter's home base this is the first church this is like where you go. This is where the decisions get made right now. This is the only church in the world still. There's churches beginning to be planted, but this is still the place. This is where the decisions are made. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now you got to understand what's going on here. You got to think about the way that Jewish people had thought about the world from the very beginning. Circumcision was what? Circumcision was a mark on the body, but it was a sign of the covenant that God had given to His special people. No one else had it. And so you could pretty much separate the world based upon this physical sign. Those who have the circ- the sign of circumcision over here, those who lack the sign of circumcision over here. Oh, and by the way, these are the people you associate with. These are the people who have been set apart and are called by God's name. These are the people living in rebellion. You remember how big of a deal it was for Peter to go and, and sit and eat. Remember he had the vision of all the animals coming down in a sheet to, to show him that God has made everything now clean. That, that we shall not call things unclean that God has made clean well none of these people had seen that vision they were still thinking under the old mentality and what we're beginning to see in the book of Acts church and this is really important because we still like to put emphasis on externals but what we are beginning to see in the book of Acts is that circumcision was never about the physical sign but circumcision was always a sign of something greater that God was intending to do circumcision on the body was a sign a physical sign of the circumcision of the heart understand church what Jesus has done Jesus has changed everything you are no longer counted among the people of God because you have some physical marker on the outside of you you can't just wear a t-shirt and say I'm a Christian now Everyone who's a part of the people of God have had their hearts circumcised by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can talk about that in so many ways. The Bible gives us all kinds of vocabulary. The new birth. Have you been born again? Have you been regenerated? Has your heart been made new Remember, baptism is the new sign of the covenant. That's the new physical sign. But even that sign is an outward sign of something that God is doing and has done inside of us. He is making us new. So it doesn't matter anymore what family you were born in. This is the whole point of Acts. It none of that stuff matters. It doesn't matter what your past is. It doesn't matter if you have this physical marker on your skin. What matters is have you believed the gospel? Peter is coming around, the circumcision party, as they're called in verse 2, are still thinking in the old way. They're criticizing Peter. And so Peter responds in verse 4 by bringing them up to date. And we're honestly just going to skip this section because what Peter does in verses 4 through 15 is he recounts everything we talked about last week from Acts 10. He says, I was up on a roof praying and I had a vision and these men came and got me and I went and met Cornelius and I preached the gospel to Cornelius and everybody in Cornelius' house and everybody who was gathered and all these Gentiles began believing the gospel and they all received the Holy Spirit. And he says in verse 15, interestingly, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. He's referring to Pentecost. Because if you'll remember, when Cornelius and company believed the gospel, they began speaking in tongues, just like what happened at Pentecost. And all of this was to validate that God was doing exactly what he had done in Jerusalem, and he is now doing it among the nations. So Peter brings them up to date. And then in verses 16 through 18, Peter interprets it for them. Look with me in verse 16. He said, And I remembered the word of the Lord. He's talking about Jesus. I remembered what Jesus taught us. Peter was there with Jesus. How he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Peter says, I remember Jesus saying that. Don't you remember Jesus saying that? If then, God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I? that I could stand in God's way. When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Peter wins them over. He stands boldly on the conviction that he just received from God, he remembers Jesus' words, he says, who are we to stand in the way of what God is doing? And they all, they all go with him. They say, okay. Now I'm using the word here, and I, I need to define it. Because what, what I'm telling you this morning Is that Peter is displaying here in Scripture something that we see displayed a lot in Scripture? And what he is displaying is a word called conviction. And I need to define that word for you because that word has a meaning that we are in danger of losing. Conviction, we live in a world right now, in the midst of a culture right now, that does not value conviction, that does not prize conviction, that does not celebrate conviction. Instead, we prize and value and celebrate compromise, which is the opposite of conviction. But Peter's showing us conviction, and what is it? This is the best I can do. Conviction is a belief. But it is not a belief that you can pick up and put down at your own convenience. It is a belief that holds you captive. It is a belief that is true because God has said it's true. And so therefore, it doesn't matter if you like it or not. It doesn't matter what your opinion of it is. It doesn't matter what the social consequences are for you holding it. God has said it, and therefore, you are held by it. You see the difference between that and the way our world works today. You see, here's the way the world works today beliefs. Beliefs are nice, and everybody has them. Beliefs are like tools. You can use your beliefs to accomplish ends that you need to accomplish, and then as soon as you're done with those beliefs, you can put them back in your toolbox. And then if you have different ends that you want to accomplish, you can just find different tools to use that may be contradictory to the other tools that you used. And then you just put it back. And so, for example, if your goal is to get someone elected to high office... You determine what beliefs do I need to emphasize to get the person I want to see elected to high office elected, and then as soon as I'm done getting that person elected, I'll put those beliefs to the side. And if that person contradicts my convictions, they're not convictions, they're beliefs, then I'll just do away with those beliefs and pick up some other ones that are useful for that time. Listen to me, church. If you are going to be a Christian who follows Jesus you have to have conviction. You have to recognize that things are true not because you conveniently discover them to be true, but things are true because God has said they are true. And when God tells us that things are true, it is not our prerogative to change that, to mess with that. We are held captive. We do not bend the truth, we bend in response to the truth. I hope you see the difference. It's, it's what the apostles are doing in the book of Acts. Remember when, when the authorities come and say, you've got to stop preaching, and what do they say? They say, we must obey God rather than men. We are held by conviction that what God has told us must reign higher than what you are telling us right now. We have a conviction, and we are being led by it. Every time I think about conviction, I think about a guy by the name of William Carey. I know that I've told you about William Carey before, um, but you've got to know who William Carey is, church. William Carey was a, was a shoemaker in, in 18th century England, okay? And he was converted, and he became a Baptist preacher, uh, he was self-taught self-taught to a great degree he ends up going and I don't want to get into his whole story I can't do it. I don't have time but William Carey was living in a time where the church believed that Matthew 28 where Jesus gives the great commission to go and make disciples of all the nations at that time everyone believed that Matthew 28 had already been fulfilled by the apostles And so they were like, there were no missions happening. Very few. And so William Carey begins reading his Bible. He begins studying the world. He begins realizing that more than half of the world had no exposure to the gospel. And he goes back to Matthew 28 and he says, there's no way that Matthew 28 has been fulfilled because the nations have not believed the gospel yet. And many of them have not even heard. And then he, he studies Matthew 28 and he writes a little booklet about Matthew 28. And he says, if, if it's been fulfilled by the apostles, then everything in Matthew 28 has been fulfilled by the apostles. Why are we baptizing and why are we teaching them what Jesus said? And then he goes back to the Baptist. And he, and he stands before them at their associational meeting and he preaches this message and he says, we have to go. And many of those senior Baptist ministers who were there, just like the circumcision party, said, hey, when God wants to reach those people, he'll do it without our help. OK. And that wasn't enough for William Carey. And he kept on, and he kept on, and he kept on. And he had friends who joined him. And they launched, they launched the modern missionary movement. They, he ends up going to India. He lives there. He, he ends up translating the scriptures into their language. He ends up, it takes him seven years, but he reaches his first convert. And then after that, many, many more begin to come. And you can go there to this day, and there's things named after him in India. There's churches that exist because of William Carey. Because he refused to bow in the face of pressure because he was held captive by a conviction that God had revealed to his people. That's what it looks like to live by conviction. Peter's doing it here. Listen, think about how hard it would be to show up to your home church and to walk in the door and for everybody there to go, No, man, you can't can't do what you did. You ate with them? You did what? And and, and Peter just begins to explain it to them. He faces the criticism. He refuses to sell out. He refuses to compromise. He refuses at this point to take the path of least resistance. Now, we're going to learn in Galatians 2 that he does have a season where he does go back on this. The pressure eventually gets to him. But here in Acts 11... He's captive to the conviction. Christ died for the Gentiles too. Christ died for the nations. And his convictional leadership wins them over. Church, listen to me. Convictions are going to cost you in life. That's the nature of a conviction. Having a conviction will cost you money. Having a conviction may get you fired. I, I've counseled people in this very church who were working for companies that, that were pro-choice and, and, and trying to legislate that upon them, and they said, no, I can't work for you anymore. Convictions will cost you your, repu- your, re- your reputation, respect. It will require your devotion, your energy, your money, your time. And so we've got to ask ourselves, Do I, is there anything in my life that I have like that? Is there a truth, a belief that holds me? What would I die for? Is there anything that I would die for? Because that is a conviction. Here's the problem, church. There's two, two problems. One is I, I'm afraid that um, a lot of us don't have any convictions. And then here's the second problem. A lot of us have convictions about all the wrong things. I have met a lot of people in my life who when you begin talking about the kingdom of Christ and you begin talking about missions and you begin talking about church planting and you begin talking about the gospel, they're interested and they'll hold that conversation. But as soon as you mention Biden or Trump, Oh, that's what we really need to be talking about. That's what gets the blood pressure rising. That's what gets the heart beating faster. Oh, let's talk about partisan politics. That's where the real battle lies. Church, listen to me. Politics is important. But politics is not ultimate. We have a Savior who says, my kingdom is not of this world. If you are more passionate about your preferred party winning election than you are about your preferred Savior receiving the glory of the world that's due His name, you've got a priority problem. You've got the wrong convictions. And you need to repent. If that is you, you need to repent. You need to come before Jesus and say, I have been wrong." I need you to change my heart. I need to prioritize the things that you teach me to prioritize in your word. I don't say that. Listen, I don't say that to lessen the importance of politics. There's a lot of ultimate things at stake that's tied to politics. But so often, our love of politics is just about our team winning. And church, listen to me. The team that we want to win is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ reaching the world. That's our team. Everything else is subservient to that. But here's the second thing I want us to see. Missions requires discernment. Missions requires discernment. Look at verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So we're going back, because you remember when Stephen was killed, was martyred, there arose at that time persecution, and and the church in Jerusalem had been scattered. Remember we talked about that, how God providentially was bringing his mission about Primarily, the first place they went was Samaria. Well, now they've gone beyond Samaria. Now they've traveled further out into the world, as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. But, look at what it tells us in verse 19, they are limiting their evangelism to Jews. You see, they haven't had what Peter just had. They haven't had this vision. They haven't had this experience. Verse 20. But... There were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also. Hellenists, Greek-speaking people, Gentiles, preaching the Lord Jesus. And look at what happened. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. So this is parallel to what's happening with Peter. This is separate from Peter, but it's the same thing. The Holy Spirit is doing something over here in this part of the world, and the Holy Spirit is doing something over here at this part of the world, because the Holy Spirit is always doing what he wants to do. And we just get to be a part of it. So all these people who had been scattered Some of them are limiting the gospel proclamation to just Jews. But here's another example of convictional leadership. Some of them are probably remembering what Jesus had taught and are saying, hey, we probably need to preach to the Gentiles too. And guess what? The Gentiles began believing. They do this at a place called Antioch. Now, Antioch was a unique place. In the Roman world it was the third largest city in the Roman Empire it was very multicultural think melting pot there were people from all places there all kinds of languages being spoken all kinds of skin tones all kinds of traditions and cultures and it was a government in Antioch that actually encouraged immigration they wanted more people to come it seems like the prime place to set up shop to begin preaching the gospel if you want to reach the nations because the nations are all there In fact, it was such a a positive, they were so positive about immigration that Jewish people there could even become citizens in Antioch. So that is where God, in his providence, begins this mission. And, And God blesses their efforts. They preach the gospel, and a great number of them believe. And so, again, the report, verse 22, comes back to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And what do they do? Notice. They don't say no, they don't get mad. They say, we need to send somebody to check it out. And they send Barnabas. Why do they send Barnabas? They send Barnabas for the same reason we would send someone if this happened. They send him to investigate, to report back, to vet, is this really happening? Are they really believing the gospel? Now who was Barnabas? I can give you everything we know about Barnabas at this point. Acts four thirty six and 37 tells us that Barnabas was one of the first ones to sell his property and give it all to the church. In 927, it was Barnabas who vouched for Saul before the church in Jerusalem and told them, hey, this guy's legit. He's not persecuting the church anymore. He's believed the gospel. And then in 1124, what it's about to tell us, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. And they send this man. It's fascinating to me. Because I think sometimes we have a view of missions that says, you know, we've got people in the church, and when they don't really have anything better to do, they'll be missionaries. And, and what we see in the Scripture is that, no, we, we don't send the people that we can't really figure out anything for them to do at home to be missionaries. We send our best. We send our most gifted. Churches only send qualified people in Scripture, and that is a pattern that we want to follow. But but the point that I want us to see here is that this church is exercising another characteristic church that I think is rare in our age, and it is the characteristic of discernment. They're not just buying what's happening in Antioch on face value. They are sending one of their best to check it out. Because listen, and you've got to know this, right? Not everything that associates with the name of Jesus is of Jesus, right? There are things out there in the world that claim the name of Jesus' church that have nothing to do with Jesus and who Jesus is. Do you know that? There are false gospel messages. There are people, opportunistic people, who are trying to simply make money using the name of Jesus. And it's always been that way. And so listen to me. Naively trusting everyone is not a fruit of the Spirit. Does that make sense? Naively trusting everyone is not a fruit of the Spirit. I was reading this past week, there's a pastor over in England named Ian Murray. If you've ever heard of the Banner of Truth, uh, he's, he's responsible for starting that. It's a publishing house that publishes old books. Um, and he's 91 years old. He's written a ton of books and a ton of biographies and histories And and someone asked him for three pieces of advice to give to a new pastor. You know, 91 year old, wise man, what are three pieces of advice that you would give to a new pastor? And he said these three things He says, one, guard your inner life. That's really good advice. He says, two, believe God's promises daily. And I can explain to you why that's important. Because so often in ministry, you're faced with things that want you to despair. And you've got to focus on the promises that God has made rather than what your eyes are seeing right in front of you. And then third, this was his third one. He says, love people, but distrust human nature. Church, there's a lot of wisdom in that advice. We need to love people. But we don't need to be surprised when people do horrible things. And when we love people, we recognize that people are fallible. And people will sin. And those people we're loving need the grace of God. So we can't just naively think that everybody's gonna, everything's going to turn out great all the time. I get emails every week. Dan and I were laughing this week because there's someone who just found us online and sent us an email and said, hey, we want to come play our music at your church. Well, church, I hope you know that that's not the way it works here. <laughs> like, you might have good music. I don't know who you are. Like, if I need you to come play music at my church, I'll call you. Because I'll know your pastor and your church and I'll have all kinds of questions that you've answered. But there are all kinds of ministries. My junk mailbox is full of people asking for money in the name of Jesus. Asking for support. We have to have discernment in the local church. This is where it is fostered. We must be accountable to a church. And so they send Barnabas. And that's where we learn the third thing that I want us to see. Verses 23 through 26. Missions requires discipleship. Verse 23. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. You see that? He comes and he sees the grace of God. He says, this is it. These people believe the gospel. They are trusting in Jesus. They have been born again, and he is glad, and he exhorts them. He says, now, so it's not enough that you're in. Now I need to begin discipling you. you see that? And he begins, he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord, which is interesting to me, because Barnabas did not go there with the purpose of reaching new people. He went there with the purpose of discipling already saved people. And yet new people are being saved. What can we learn from that? The life of the church, if it is faithful to Christ, will always be evangelistic. In the midst of our discipleship, everything we teach is pointing people to Jesus Christ and what He has done for us. And so if someone had come in off the street, even though my purpose here this morning is not evangelism, my purpose here this morning in this sermon is to disciple us, the the people of God, to more faithfully follow Jesus My prayer is that if someone walked in here who does not know Jesus, they will hear the gospel, they will hear the gospel through the songs that we sing, they will hear the gospel through the prayers that we pray, and they will be saved. That's our prayer. When you focus everything on Christ, when all of our discipleship arises from the gospel, everything we do is evangelistic. So Barnabas, look at what he does next. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Barnabas says, I need help. And he goes and he gets Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. They met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians Barnabas goes and gets Saul and says, I need you to help me. We are going to live in Antioch for a year and we are going to teach these Christians for a year. We are going to commit our lives to discipling them. You know what I love about this? Whose name do you know most today? Barnabas or Paul? Paul. Paul's going to go on and and become the most famous of the apostles. Paul is going to go on and write 13 letters that make up a great portion of our New Testaments. Paul is going to be renowned. Paul is going to show how gifted he is theologically, how gifted of a church planter and leader and missionary he is. Barnabas recognized that. Barnabas set his ego aside because Barnabas could have been the man in Antioch. But it's not about Barnabas. It's about Jesus Christ. And so Barnabas recognizes that he needs help. And so he goes and gets a man who is more gifted than him and who will rise to greater prominence. And he says, come over here and help me with this. Listen to me, church. Feeling threatened because other people are more gifted than you is not of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. When we feel threatened because other people are more gifted than we are, we are proving that we are using Jesus to prop ourselves up rather than serving the name of Jesus. Because when it's about Jesus, we are okay stepping to the side and letting somebody else come and show that they have more gifts than we have because it's not about us anyways so I don't have to feel threatened by someone else being gifted listen to me Jesus Christ is too glorious for one person to be sufficient to properly extol his name does that make sense you see what I'm saying who Jesus is is too much for the gifts of one person It takes all of us using all of our gifts. And even then, we do not even begin to touch the glories of who Jesus is. Barnabas steps aside. He says, come on, Saul, I need you here for a year. And look at what happens in Antioch. The disciples were first called Christians, and I love that. You wonder why that happened. Why weren't disciples called Christians before that? Because... Before this time, all the Christians were Jews. And so they were called Jews, probably Jews who followed Jesus, followers of the way. But that was within Judaism in the minds of people. But now we need this new word because we don't just have Jews following Jesus. We have Gentiles following Jesus. And so we've got to come up with a different word. Christians, those who identify with Jesus. Here's the, th- the last thing I want us to see. Missions ends with new churches. Verses 27 through 30. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus. So, so a prophet comes from Jerusalem to Antioch. A prophet would have been someone. And I want you to remember that at this time, they don't have the New Testament. Right? They don't have what we're reading right now. They were dependent on prophets in the church to continue to speak new revelation from God for the church. And so prophets come from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So a prophet comes and he he says, there's going to be a great famine. And look at their response in Antioch. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, the Jerusalem church. So so the disciples in Antioch, these new Christians, this new church, gets together and they say, There's about to be a famine in the Jerusalem church, in the mother church in that area. And we need to help them. And so they began pooling their resources together so that they could send it back, verse 30, and they did so sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. They say, Barnabas, Saul, thank you for all that you've done in discipling us. This is our gift to the Jerusalem First Baptist Church. Will you take it back to them and make sure that they get it so that they will know how appreciative we are and how how bought in we are in this same mission that we have. And and in a few chapters, what we're going to learn is that the church in Antioch is not just sending financial gifts, they are also sending missionaries out to plant new churches. Because this is what happens. The Spirit comes, people are saved, discipleship happens, all in the context of a local church being gathered, where they begin, they they are going to recognize elders here who are going to lead them, pastors, elders, and and they are going to disciple and reach more people, and pretty soon they're going to be sending missionaries out, and, and they're pooling their resources, and they're sending generous gifts to other churches to help them. What we are learning in the book of Acts, church, is listen, if the end goal is not new churches, you can't call it the fulfillment of the great commission that is what jesus was telling us to do everything in the great commission depends upon a local church all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth do you know who wields the authority the people that jesus earlier in the book of matthew gave the keys to The keys of the kingdom entrusted to the apostles making confession on this church, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Make disciples. How do you make disciples? Do you make disciples in the context of the church? Teaching them everything that I have commanded you, everything, including everything that I taught you about the church. Oh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We learn in Acts 2 that when people are baptized, they are baptized into the body. They are added to the number of the church. And then in, in Acts 2, that we see what their life begins to look like. What's the point? The point is that that's why we're here now. The reason why we exist right now, as we do, is because... A group of people in Lexington, a church there, similar to Jerusalem, decided that they wanted to obey the call and invest resources and send people over here to Oldham County to plant this church out of using a church that was was making another painful decision to come to an end, but also to reach new people in our community. That's the pattern. Because there's a conviction that God has given us a mission to reach the nations and that He intends to accomplish that mission through church planting. And that is going to require sacrifice, church. Don't you know that? Because listen to me, it does not stop here. If we are going to be a faithful church that is convictional about what God has revealed to us, we are going to be sending people out soon too. And guess what? Some of the people that we are going to send out, you are going to miss. You are going to love them. It is going to be painful because you are we are going to realize that these are people in our midst and sending them out means that they're not going to be here with us anymore. And it is going to require us to continue to make sacrifices, even greater sacrifices than we've made before. To write bigger checks. Not because we're trying to build bigger buildings and have better things all the time, but to write bigger checks because we believe that those people on the other side of the world need the gospel too. Because we are going to have to come to the conclusion, church, listen, that it's not about us and it's not about our comfort, but it is about the glory of Jesus Christ. And if we would live with that conviction, we will be a faithful church. Let's pray together.